Right, continuing in our study of the Gospels, um, returning to the Gospel of John, picking up approximately where we left off in this Gospel. We've been in, we were in the Gospel of Mark for a couple of weeks. Uh, if you remember back when Jesus had his conversation with Nicodemus and told him that he had to be born again, uh, and then either he at that time or at some other time or the person writing the gospel uh, gave a very moving description of explaining exactly how the grace works. That was the one centering around uh, the only begotten son. Right after this, uh, if this chronology is trustworthy, um, Jesus left Judea and departed again into Galilee. We're on the fourth chapter now of the Gospel. And this is a famous story, a very remarkable story, and quite a beautiful one, which Master Kripal has mentioned many times throughout his discourses and is perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Gospels of the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's a very important story also, and the esoteric teaching is quite clear in it. So I'll read it through and then we'll go over it in some detail. He left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. That is, at noon. It was about noontime. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat, which of course modern translations say food there, because that's all it's implied, as I've explained many times. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? for the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water, that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. 
Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship. The salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshiper shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked to the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have food to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat, my food, is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest? Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, this is a long story, and we may not have time to get through it all today, but it is extremely interesting and covers a lot of different things. And I'll try to point them out. First of all, he says he must need to go through Samaria. Now, geographically speaking, that's not true at all. There is no necessity to go through Samaria. In fact, uh, a road was set up precisely so the, so the Jewish people in general could avoid Samaria. And in order to understand what Samaria meant at the time of the New Testament and who the Samaritans were, needs a little bit of background. Because, because of the New Testament, we tend to have a distorted picture of exactly who the Samaritans were and so forth. Uh, you may or may not know that in the time of David and Solomon, which is approximately 1000 BC, about a thousand years before these events, uh, there was one kingdom called Israel, which included uh, what in the time of the Gospels was Judea, Samaria, and a number of other places too. And it was the united kingdom of all of the twelve tribes of Israel. Under the reign of the son of Solomon, whose name was Rehoboam, there was a rebellion. And ten of the twelve tribes rebelled 
there was a civil war, the ten tribes won, that is to say, they won the right to rebel, they broke away and they formed a kingdom of their own, which they called Israel. Most of the people of the old kingdom were in the new kingdom. They were among the rebels. This was for tribal reasons. Uh, the old kingdom had been dominated by the tribe of Judah, of which both David and Solomon were members. Now, when the two kingdoms happened, when the old kingdom split, the kingdom of Judah, which was basically just the tribe of Judah, which singly had been the strongest of the tribes, plus also the smaller tribe of Benjamin, kept the capital of Jerusalem, which meant that they remained in control of the religious establishment, the priests, the temple, and so forth, the setup. The ten tribes that formed Israel established their own capital, which they called Samaria. And this was the capital city of the kingdom of Israel. Now, still the people of the northern kingdom, and the kingdom of Israel is often called the northern kingdom because these names get very confusing, the people of the northern kingdom did go to Jerusalem for the temple. They did participate in the sacrificial cult there, and they were able to cross the border for that purpose. But there was a tendency, in other ways, to split apart. However, during this period, the kingdom of Israel was very, some of the greatest prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and others, um, who are very prominent in the Bible, came out of the northern kingdom. About three or four hundred years after the kingdoms were set up, one of the emperor's empires of that day, uh, it was the Assyrians, I believe, who were dominant, came through and conquered the northern kingdom. They smashed it, they destroyed its capital city, and they deported the people. Now, when we read in the Bible or in ancient records that uh, people were deported, it does not mean that every single person in the place was taken away. It means that the important people were taken away, the leaders, the intellectuals, professional people, people who knew something, people, in other words, who were possible troublemakers, were removed wholesale and dispersed in uh, throughout the Assyrian Empire. And this is the origin of the phrase you have often referred to as the ten lost tribes of Israel, because those ten tribes disappeared as far as history goes, and no one really knows what has happened to them, although there are I think thousands of theories. I have personally heard about 50 in my own lifetime, and there are many more. Uh, the Mormon Church believes that they became the American Indians, and uh, Arthur Kessler apparently thinks that something else happened to them, and so forth. There are all kinds of theories, and some of them may be true. We don't know. In any case, uh, at the same time, they brought in a whole bunch of other people from other parts of the empire and put them there to take the place of the people they had taken out. But the common people, the peasants, the villagers, the uneducated people, uh, the lowest of the low, in other words, by their standards, were left behind. And all contact with the southern kingdom of Judah was cut off at this point. Assyria did not conquer Judah. That was uh, one of the most interesting miracles of the Old Testament, which Lord Byron wrote up as a poem, uh, in which apparently they were attacked by plague on the eve of attacking Jerusalem, and they went away. Uh, they, Jerusalem was conquered 150 years later by the Babylonians but they had 150 years of grace in between times well by the time of the New Testament what had happened was that the people who lived in what had been Judah now called Judea and it's the origin of the word Jew is from, is from that 
country of Judea, which is based on Judah, plus Galilee, which is to the north of Samaria, and which was not historically part originally of the large kingdom of Israel, uh, had preserved the Jewish religion, the religion of the Old Testament, reasonably intact. This is now from their point of view. They would say that they had preserved it perfectly. Whereas the Samaritans, uh, who by now were a racial mixture, were not primarily Jewish at all, had uh, had a very, by the standards of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, had a very imperfect um, religious practice. They no longer came to Jerusalem. They had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which had been destroyed uh, about a hundred years before the time of the Gospels by a Jewish high priest. And uh, that is the mountain that uh, the woman is referring to. They continued to worship there, even though the temple was destroyed. Um, so that the Jewish people of Judea looked down on the Samaritans on two counts, that they were racially inferior and that they were religiously inferior. For one thing, the Samaritan people only accepted the first five books of the Bible as scripture. And the Jewish people accepted the, by this time, accepted the writings of the prophets as well as the book of Psalms and so forth. Now, when uh, so, in other words, the Samaritans were were nobody to the Jewish people. It was they were on two counts despised, and Jews didn't even like to go into Samaria. They felt that they considered that contact with the Samaritan was defiling in itself. Uh, Samaritans were very aware of this, and uh, always, of course, a despised people has its own way of looking at the people who despised them. At the same time, in the context of the time, um, Jerusalem and Judea was where the action was, and Samaria was nothing. It was a, an out-of-the-way, backward province, um, and therefore the people didn't have a very high opinion of themselves. When Master Kapal used to tell this story, he invariably said that the woman perhaps had an inferiority complex. And she said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask drink of me? Anyway, one of the things which Jesus does, we have seen in last week's comment, how uh, he made a point out of associating with people which made other people look down on him. He did not care about being respectable in, at least in these outer things. He did not care uh, whether other people would object if he talked to a given person or not. And uh, therefore he associated with tax collectors and prostitutes, which is the words translated as publicans and sinners, is what they mean. Here we have him going out of his way to go to a Samaritan woman. Now, Why do I say out of his way? Because there was no need to go through Samaria. As we said, Jews did not like to go into Samaria. Therefore, they built a road which bypassed Samaria from Galilee to Judea. And everyone who traveled back and forth between those two places traveled that road. And yet, uh, the author here is very emphatic. He must needs go through. Of necessity, he must go through. Therefore, the conclusion is, obviously, that he had to go there because he had to see that woman and reach her. So for her sake, and for the sake of the villagers also, through whom, whom he reached through her, he went out of his way into hostile territory, into Samaria, 
and uh, reached her, gave her what he wanted to give her. I think it's a remarkable example. of I've seen this in the lives of both Kapal and Ajayib. I have seen this many times. How the master will go out of his way to primarily reach one person and through that person many others. Uh, sometimes I've I've known instances where the master has gone to a place specifically for, has told me that he has gone specifically for one person, and yet many others also get benefit when that happens. So we are, it's definitely, I think, the author's intention to imply that he had to go there, as he says later on in the discourse or in the talk, um, that he has to do the will of his father who has sent him, and which in this case meant going to this particular out-of-the-way place and talk to this woman. Now, the woman has many counts against her, obviously, and Jesus does not pull any punches with her. This is a really remarkable conversation, I think, uh, one that in many ways stands with some of the stories that are told about past masters or present ones, too, in the Santanat tradition. Uh, who is this woman? She's a Samaritan, first of all, with all that. She, by the way, I use Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, which, um, of course, is what we all know about the word Samaritan, has the same background that I've given you. In other words, when he told that parable in answer to the question, who is my neighbor, um, he deliberately took the most despised person possible in the eyes of the person who asked him that question and made him the hero of his story. Uh, and by one of the strange twists of history, uh, that has remained in the Bible and the whole context out of which he came has been forgotten. And I think if you take a poll of Sunday school students and people who remember their Sunday school days, they will think that Samaritan means great person you know, or, or good guy, best kind of person. And it's an irony, I think, a great irony. Anyway, she's not only that, but she is also um, a woman of very questionable reputation. Um, to say the least. She, uh, well, let's get to that. First of all, she turns up and she points out that uh, he asks her to give him to drink. And Master says her inferiority complex, her sense of being a Samaritan, comes to the fore and she directly questions him. Obviously, she is not so intimidated as to not be direct with him. Um, you know, you're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan. Why are you bothering with me? And Jesus' reply, in which he states, and this is the first time in the Gospel that he speaks of this living water, which I'll get to in a second, but his reply to her is as much as saying, you know, that you too have a right to this. This is the point. I asked you um, to give me to drink because you and I, uh, regardless of Samaritan and Jew question, have connections with each other. You would have asked of me, and I would have given it to you, living water. Now there's a little bit of a pun here, because the word for living can mean flowing. It means both, living and flowing water. Its original meaning is living, but it is also applied to uh, water in streams as opposed to waters in wells and cisterns, for example. 
And uh, so the woman does not understand fully what he means at first. And she thinks that he's saying uh, that she's got he's got better water and can be gotten out of the well. But how can he have it? And uh, then he explains to her what the living water is. And he gives her, in effect, out of the blue, he gives her a very profound and esoteric part of his teaching uh, in its most complete form. And this, indeed, these verses 13 and 14 are really important. Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now we know, because we have access to a much wider tradition than most people who study the Bible, because we take seriously a much wider tradition than most people who study the Bible, that this concept of living water is a universal concept, that it is found in all the religions and all the scriptures of the world. In India it is most often called as Amrit, which translates easily as nectar. And in his book, Namo Word, Master Kripal has shown how this concept of Amrit, or the water of life, is found in all the scriptures, including the one that we are now reading, because this section is quoted there. Uh, and we know further, because of, of the tradition that we have access to, and the masters whom we have met, that uh, this living water is another way of referring to Nam, or the power of God, the same power that in the first chapter of this gospel is called the Word. And one of the, Jesus is here laying emphasis when the nam is referred to as the water of life or the nectar. Okay, there are several contexts or several connotations of that which are not always present when another name is used. And one of them is the, the bliss of it. Okay, that there is, this living water is very intoxicating to drink. That is not emphasized right here in this verse, but it's often there. The other is its capacity when we are given nam by the master. Okay, a connection is established between him and us, and we all know that. But the what he gives us is not supposed to stay on that level of him giving us something. And there are thousands of references to this in the writings of the masters also, that if you develop that which he gives us, then it becomes in us also, an ocean, a perennial source. We will have contact with that perennial source, and then we will not be any. It will not be any longer a question of us conserving what we have been given, but rather it will be a matter of giving out freely from the never-ending source that we have tapped within ourselves. And that is the tremendous teaching that Jesus is giving out here for the first time in the Gospels. I shall give him, shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Of course, he is playing with the woman a little bit because he is not bothering to clarify that he is talking on a different level than she is. The masters do that sometimes, but the purpose of it is to make us think, to shock us into realizing that um, we are not in, in an ordinary situation when we are speaking with a master. So he, is, he presents this absolutely tremendous concept to her out of the blue to this woman who we may have reason to believe has never thought along these terms in her life and uh, she responds sir give me this water 
that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Now, she may or may not know it, but she's asking for initiation at this point and is accepted as such, as we will see, although not quite without problems, as we will also see. So Jesus says, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. This was a sort of a test, in other words. Uh, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. Okay, after presenting to her the possibility of human life through this image of the living water, and after telling her that it is available to her, and after she has come and has asked for it, then Jesus brings up the question of her lifestyle, you may say, her life situation. And this little byplay between them has been the inspiration of complete novels, I will say, but certain things are, are noticeable. For one thing, masters do often uh, respond to people directly without having had things explained to them uh, beforehand. There is a very amusing incident in one of the articles that will be in the next issue of St. Bonnie, written by uh, an old friend of mine, John Molinari, uh, reminiscing about Master Kapal, who gives an incident uh, of this sort. And I have myself experienced with both Kapal and Ajay uh, this thing in which my innermost being, it would seem, was penetrated without uh, any uh, voluntary information on my part. And it can be, of course, very uncomfortable. Now, the woman does not know at this point of course, that Jesus knows anything. It's a legitimate question. Most village women do have husbands. Presumably, she is of a marrying age. So her answer, I have no husband, in a sense, she passes the test. There's another connotation to this. Many commentators have pointed out that she is quick to say, I have no husband, because she is interested in Jesus in a romantic way. And if we take it from this point of view, then it fits in very well to stories of tempting the master kind of that kind of thing, which at the end of um, the discourse, Dance, Mind, Dance, Sanchi gives several examples of Guru Nanak and Guru Gobind Singh being approached by women who were interested in them from a romantic point of view, and that they responded by simply dealing with them as though they were spiritual seekers, uh, not paying any attention whatever to the romantic part, treating them as souls and culminating in the women's initiation. Whereas they were not punished, but neither did their... Their ideas were taken as a handle, in other words, for in which could be used for God to approach them also. And that, if this, if that connotation is true, if she is flirting a little bit, renouncing her availability, uh, then, of course, we have a very similar story here, because this also ends in her initiation, and Jesus does not uh, waste any time accepting, you know, taking this uh, on that level at all. So Jesus says unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, but thou hast had five husbands. Uh, According to Jewish law at this time, it was not legal to have more than three husbands. That is, you could not get married more than three times in the course of your lifetime. So that her last two were, strictly speaking, illegal anyway. Now this may not have been true in Samaria. Not much is known about that. And it's possible that Jesus is not applying law to her that, that she's not living under. 
But in any case, she's not married to the one that she's now living with. He whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that said thou truly. And he is pleased that she is, that she has freely admitted that. In that sense, she has passed a little test here. Another article that will be in the next issue of Santani, uh, written by our brother Michael Barrickman, uh, giving a very, in a way, very amusing and in another way, very horrendous account, uh, a very similar experience, uh, which happened to him in which they did not answer this question quite so truthfully and how Master Kripal reacted to that, uh, although that also ended happily and culminated in their initiation and so forth. Uh, so it is important if she had as one commentator says at this point it's useless to speculate on what would have happened if she had gone and fetched back her paramour and presented him as her husband she did not do that anyway she understood the difference and that difference is important Jesus does not punish anyone in this particular section that's not his interest not his interest anyway but neither is he pretending that things are, are any different than they are and uh this is something that has to be dealt with. She has to at least confess it to him and understand that this is not a good thing that she is doing. So when he says this, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Perceive, of course, means literally recognize. And Here again we have the same thing. She has asked him for the living water and now she recognizes him on some level as a holy man which is, after all, all it wanted. Now, she presents him with what seems like a non-sequitur. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say, because she knows that he's a Jew, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, it's not a non-sequitur. She's, for one thing, interested in changing the subject. I think we can assume that. This cannot be pleasant for her, uh, even though she obviously is fascinated by Jesus and wants his company. At the same time, it's a hard, he's taking her down a hard line right there. So she's changing the subject very rapidly. But the other thing is that this kind of question is exactly the question that you ask prophets. This is a question of correct religion, you might say. Something that maybe she's thought about a lot. Who knows? That in Samaria we do it this way, but then you people over there, just a few miles across the border, say that it should be done this way which is right. And Jesus takes the occasion to again give her uh, a very important part of his teaching, which I don't think is expressed so completely anywhere except in this place. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now this is a very specific prophecy, actually, uh, because just uh, 40 years from the time of this statement, there was no worship happening. The temple was flattened. The whole religious establishment at Jerusalem was dispersed and I don't believe the Samaritans did survive and I think there are 100 or 200 left to this day of the the literal descendants of the Samaritan people. But in terms of of a nationwide thing, it was ended also. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. The salvation is of the Jews. There's a very interesting uh, statement which has to be understood in terms of what we said a few weeks back. Remember that the Samaritan Bible stopped with the five books of Moses. Remember also that those books, the Torah, the last editing that had been done to them had been done by the priestly 
editors and therefore to read the books as a whole we had a very different view of what the original teachings had been than if we read it before those editing had taken place. They edited, as we saw from the point of view of the importance of the priesthood, of the necessity of the sacrificial cult, the temple, the ritualistic uh, sacrifices for each type of sin and so forth, kind of thing that makes some people very unhappy when they start reading the Bible. Uh, we have also seen that, that uh, the prophetic tradition, the genuine spiritual tradition that had grown up at the same time, which had expressed expressed itself in a number of other books, which later became canonized, that is, became accepted as sacred, and that those books offered an alternative. That alternative was not available to the Samaritans, even though they had participated in that tradition, because they had not accepted those books as scripture, they did not uh, have that counterbalance. Therefore, uh, what they had was a very distorted view of the particular revelation that had been given within the context of the Jewish religion. And this is what Jesus means here. This is the sense in which he is talking. There is no way, as uh, he explains in the very next verse, that he is defending the temple in Jerusalem. As we have seen, he has, uh, his only interest in the temple is uh, in bypassing it or having it destroyed even. He does not uh, support, and could not if he were a master, the sacrificial ritual as of any kind of of, um, of positive value at all. But he is speaking of the prophetic esoteric tradition which has been preserved within the framework of the Jewish religion and of which he and John the Baptist were in fact the contemporary expressions. But he's saying even this now, that the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. Very, very beautiful verse. Uh, complete teaching of the Master is in it. The hour cometh and now is. It doesn't matter which mountain or which temple you worship at. It's totally irrelevant. The true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth how by virtue of the living water that I was just telling you about, that's implied there, this has to be read in the immediate context of the conversation. That is, that living water, by virtue of its being the same concept as nam or word, is also spirit, the Holy Spirit, and it is given by the Master to the disciple, and this is what true worship consists of, is coming in contact with that. Other worship in other words, such as the temple worship, which is specifically under consideration here, is not in truth. The word in truth, in other words, is set up as an alternative to the worship that the woman is talking about. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. And that's why I'm here talking to you, dear friend, because the Father is seeking such, he's seeking you to worship him in this way. He wants you to come in contact with the with him in spirit and in truth come in contact with the living water to drink it to develop that well of water he wants that to happen to you even though you are a Samaritan you are a woman and you are a very immoral person none of that seems to matter in tar- as far as giving you that which you were born to have is concerned God is a spirit 
And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If we are really going to know him, okay, then we must go where he is, in other words. We must become like him. And unsaid but implied is that this is what the prophets did. This is the true meaning of the prophetic tradition, the sayings of the prophets. And I am now presenting it to you face to face as a challenge and a, a, a thing for you to do in your life. This is for you now, not theoretical only. This is what you are faced with, this particular decision. If you want God, you have to become like him. In spirit, to contact him directly and in truth. Truth, of course, spirit and in truth could well be translated into Punjabi or Hindi as Satnam. Those are the two opponent, two components of that particular word. And uh, commentators think that Strictly speaking, they are not two different things, but two different ways of saying the same thing. In the Hebrew and Aramaic languages, which, although this gospel was written in Greek, if this conversation took place historically, it was, it was in Aramaic, uh, it was often, it was customary to use the word and and use a synonym to make, uh, to add emphasis. So the woman says to him, okay, I know that the Messiah is coming which is called Christ. That which is called Christ is a gloss. In other words, he's translating it into Greek. Uh, in the Greek language, this reads, I know that the Messiah is coming, that is to say, the anointed. He's translating the word Messiah for the convenience of his readers. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And this is, it's, many people have thought it very curious that Jesus so freely reveals himself at this place, whereas in most other places in the gospel, he is very cagey about accepting that particular title of the Messiah. And it has been suggested the Samaritans had a different concept of the Messiah than the Jews, and it is very possible, in fact, that she didn't use this word Messiah in the original conversation. They had a concept of someone coming uh, who would be like Moses, a prophet like Moses is the term, based on a prophecy of Moses from the book of Deuteronomy, which as we have seen was the the prophetic or the esoteric school's attempt to spiritualize the Torah. And uh, in that book, Moses says that there will be a prophet like me who will come, who will complete this work, or something like that. Um, I do not look up the exact prophecy. And this is because the Samaritans did not accept the later books in which the concept of the Messiah was uh, spelled out more specifically as the great king who would lead the country and conquer all their enemies. Uh, she is saying then that she knows that a great holy man is coming who will tell us all things. So that, in other words, she has hit much closer onto the true mission of Jesus than was done in Judea. Another irony, perhaps, considering... Uh, the statement above that salvation is of the Jews. But nonetheless, uh, she did. So that when Jesus says to her, I that speak unto thee and he, uh, it perhaps has less um, of a negative feel than it would have been had he proclaimed himself the Messiah in Jerusalem, for example. Uh, another part of that is this, that this is, of course, a very out-of-the-way place very poor place, and the people are despised. And yet, as we will see, 
they have a lot of love. We're not going to be able, I perceive, to finish this section today. We will continue where we're leaving off next week. Um, but we will see that the people here, these ignorant, despised, nothing villagers, responded with love. They did accept what Jesus is giving them. And that we know that there are situations, those who were present when Sanchi first went to Bombay and saw uh, the way in which the people there greeted him, will testify that when in certain situations the Master will reveal himself much more fully uh, than he ordinarily will. He will both say and do things that he would not ordinarily say and do. But this kind of spontaneous recognition love will bring that out. And something very marvelous is happening here between Jesus and this woman, uh, which will spread out into all her co-villagers as well, as we will see.